HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hey, everybody. Before we get started, just a quick announcement. The episode that you're about to hear of Back Bar originally aired as Bar None in 2016. Cheers. There's a passage from the book Shaking in the 60s in which a character called Madam Experience leads another character called Mrs. Newlywed through all the steps she'll need to throw the perfect cocktail party. Watching Mrs. Newlywed guided through her own living room is kind of like watching Dante being led through hell as Madam Experience spends an entire chapter of the book telling her everything there is to know about swinging a flawless party. And I mean everything. What drinks to serve, what food to serve, where to serve, how many glasses she'll need per guest, how many ashtrays she'll need per guest, where to put the ashtrays, where to put the bar, where to put the furniture, how warm to make the room, how bright to make the room, and how to address the invitations which will be mailed out in advance, obviously. And here's the thing, Madam Experience is not alone. There are dozens of books from the 50s and 60s which fret every single minutia of party throwing until it's almost like Newtonian physics and its obsession with the theory of everything. The formula for a perfect party exists, surely, somewhere, we just need to find it. Which, 50 years later, leads to a couple of questions. Did they get what they were after? And why were they searching so hard? I'm Greg Benson, and this is Bar None. My name is Samantha Garner, and I'm from Boston, Massachusetts. I'm a Cheeselandian because I take cheese seriously, just like they do in Wisconsin. Go to Cheeselandia.com to learn more, and if it's for you, sign up. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the show. You're listening to Bar None, the podcast where we discuss the history of our favorite drinks and how what we're drinking shapes history. Today we're going to be talking about the 1950s and 60s and taking a close look at their golden boy, the martini, which is arguably one of the most iconic drinks of the past century. Even today, when you say the word martini, it brings up all sorts of images of classy men holding that iconic conical glassware. It makes people think of Frank Sinatra or Don Draper and the era they stood for, with its drab suits and home bars and cocktail parties executed with the precision of a Navy SEAL. But by the end of the 60s, that era was waning, and the martini, in fact, all cocktails, were headed into a dark age of indifference and poor craftsmanship. 
So what the hell happened? Well, to answer that question, because this is bar none after all, we have to take a step back and look at where the reign of the dry martini began. When writing The Bartender's Book in 1951, authors Jack Townsend and Tom Moore decided to do a little experiment. They circulated a questionnaire to bartenders across the United States and Canada and asked them to rank some 40-odd drinks by how frequently they were served, whether they were served primarily to men or women, and to make a note if the drink's popularity was rising or falling. The overall winner was somewhat up for debate. The Tom Collins claimed top honors everywhere except Manhattan, which, shocker of shockers, preferred Manhattans. The Martini, however, was the silver medalist across the board, and more importantly, it was the only drink out of the almost 50 Townsend and Moore surveyed whose popularity was listed as, quote, greatly increasing. They weren't wrong. For the next decade and a half in America, the dry martini was basking in the warm light of a golden age. Every source from that era, every recipe book or home bartending guide lists the martini first and foremost as the must-have, must-serve, must-get-right beverage of the day. 1951's The Cocktail Hour calls martinis and Manhattans the, quote, favorite cocktails of most persons, while Trader Vic's Bartender's Guide of the same era concludes, quote, People are more critical of a martini than any other drink. But perhaps the most telling quote of all can be found in the recipe pages of the always timely Old Mr. Boston Official Bartender's Guide, 45th edition. See Special Martini section on pages 116 and 117. End quote. My grandparents maintained a really cool home bar that, that he had a fully stocked set of, um, you know, spirits and could swing a bar for anybody, you know, back in the 50s. This really cool Mad Men style, you know, uh, bar with polished glass and painted brick and all this stuff. And, uh, you know, that was just in a little one-story one house um, in the basement. He wasn't, you know, rich or anything. He was just a Midwest factory worker. That's Scott Harris, vice president, general manager, and founder of Catoctin Creek Distilling, which means that, like us, he doubles as both a professional and recreational booze nerd. We chatted about this era in American history, an era that took less than 20 years after the repeal of Prohibition to birth a huge surge in home bartending. Up until the late 40s, most cocktail books were written by bartenders for bartenders with an occasional reluctant acknowledgement that the unwashed masses might want in on the action. In 1947, Trader Vic wrote in the intro to his book, This is intended to be a guide for professional bartenders. I have an idea, however, that you amateur mixologists will be horning in on it. But fast forward to 1963, and Eddie Clark, renowned British bartender and author of Shaking in the 60s, is writing, Everyone's ambition is to have their own cocktail bar at home, for that is the mecca and the summit of the social ladder. It only took 16 years for the home bar to go from a begrudging acknowledgement to the end-all be-all of social satisfaction, up there with a Chevy Impala and a Golden Retriever. Now, Rome wasn't built in a day. There was a lot that had to happen to get the home bar from point A to point B, but perhaps the biggest, most watershed moment along that route happened in 1948 with the publication of David A. Embry's The Fine Art of Mixing Drinks. David Embry is regarded, widely and rightly, as one of the most influential figures in modern cocktail history, even though he was not a bartender, a distiller, a distributor, or in any way involved professionally with booze, aside from, I'm sure, the occasional tax write-off. He was a lawyer, a highly opinionated one for that matter, 
But when he published his book in the late 40s, he broke down some walls that had been standing since the cocktail was invented, and he started with this introduction. Anyone can make good cocktails. The art of mixing drinks is no deep and jealously guarded secret, nor is it a skill to be acquired only as a result of years of painstaking effort. It could be learned practically overnight. Even today, reading the fine art of mixing drinks kind of feels like the cocktail equivalent of listening to the first non-Latin mass. As merely a, quote, consumer and a shaker-upper of drinks for the delectation of my guests, Embry wrote a book that was by the people, for the people, in plain-speaking terms that everyone can understand. And in doing so, he brought the light of mixology to a growing and thirsty middle class. Also, he's pretty goddamn funny. And let your cocktail glasses be made of glass. They may be either expensive crystal from plumbers or students, or they may be the five and 10 cent variety from Woolworths, but be sure they are glass. I have friends whose pride and joy are their gold-lined sterling cocktail glasses. They are beautiful to look at, but any cocktail drunk from them tastes like arsenic and rusty tin. Furthermore, be sure that the glasses are long-stemmed. A stemless cocktail glass is a monstrosity. See? Opinionated. Opinionated and smart. Embry, doubtless, could see the way the wind was blowing. He was a lawyer, after all, and the rise of a suburban consumer class was obvious to anybody who bothered to look. The 50s saw Americans fleeing cities en masse as urban infrastructure decayed. By 1960, 25% of the nation's homes were less than 10 years old, and the suburbs they provided promised relief from city life and everything that came with it. Crime, trash, noise. The golden age of the middle class was dawning. People who had never before owned homes or disposable income suddenly found themselves with both, and they were eager to grow into their roles as the vanguards of honesty, decency, and morality. And they expressed all those values by throwing parties. Lots and lots of parties. The phenomenon of the cocktail party was widespread enough and frequent enough to prompt columnist Hal Boyle to remark on the subject in 1959. One way to tell a person's age is by his attitude toward cocktail parties. If he looks forward to cocktail parties and feels each one is exciting and different, he is very, very young. But the more he attends, the more all seem alike. And in 1960... When you drink at a cocktail party, you are like an animal at the zoo. He doesn't get the whole picture because he is part of the system. But when you go to a cocktail party stone sober, and stay that way, you are a spectator at the zoo, amusedly looking through the bars as your fellow creatures perform. And in 1965. Everybody talks about cocktail parties, but nobody ever does anything about them. Except to throw another one. Originally, the cocktail party was invented as a pleasant way of paying off small social debts en masse. Now, it is just another way to get even. And looking at this clearly quite widespread phenomenon, there is something I couldn't quite figure out. We're talking about the generation whose parents made alcohol constitutionally illegal in the United States. Why would they want to pick spirits as a status symbol? To figure this out, I talked to Professor Fred Smith at the College of William and Mary. He's an anthropologist who studies the effects of alcohol on cultures and cultural attitudes. And we bandied around all sorts of theories as to why the greatest generation chose to use martinis as a sign that they'd made it. 
you know, when we think of a generation rebellion, we think of like, you know, the flower children, like listening to the doors and taking a lot of acid, but was the martini culture as much of kind of a, a screw you to the generation that outlawed alcohol in America as that? I mean, I hadn't thought about it in those terms, and, um, but that is an interesting way to think about it because it is interesting. Why does the martini culture take off at this time? You know, is there an increasing, there's sort of ideological factors and material factors, right? So increasing wealth, right, is a, is a material factor that perhaps leads to um, greater surplus income that can be spent on luxuries, right? Or perhaps suburbanization, right? So all of a sudden you've got suburban areas developing and bars are opening, you know, sort of specialty bars and sort of these upwardly mobile areas. You discuss all kinds of things that could have led to the rise of the martini in the middle part of the century. The economic boom, the British invasion, the fact that these were middle-aged men driving the winds of change and were statistically unlikely to pick Jaeger bombs as a status symbol. But we kept circling back to this idea of aspirational drinking, the notion that you pick your drinks the same way you pick your clothes, your house, your car, your job. They all prove on the outside what you want to be on the inside. People are what they drink, um, and they define themselves by what they drink. One of the things that I look at in the class is how much drinking is part of sort of your own national identity and your own patriotic identity. So. In a way, you're consuming that, the essence of what you want and what you are and what you desire to be. You know? It was life imitating art, imitating life imitating art, like 1930s gangsters who learned how to speak by watching movies about themselves. Americans wanted to be free, so they bought cars that let them travel. They wanted to be urbane, so they followed all 927 steps to throwing the perfect party. They wanted to be cool, so they drank martinis. And when you're talking about cool, there's perhaps no name more pertinent to the conversation than Bond. James Bond. Even today, you would be hard-pressed to argue that 007 is not the perfect human embodiment of suave. When he debuted in 1953, fellow crime novelist Raymond Chandler called Bond what every man would like to be and what every woman would like to have between her sheets. He's sophisticated, he's sexy, and he gave the world quite possibly the three most annoying words any bartender has ever encountered anywhere, shaken, not, and stirred. A dry martini, one and a deep champagne goblet. This is Bond ordering his now signature drink from the barman at the Royale Le Eau. Since his debut in 1953, the drink he's ordering has become a classic cocktail in its own right, known as the Vesper. <clears throat> Oui, monsieur. Just a moment. Three measures of Gordon's, one of vodka, half a measure of Kina Lele. Shake it very well until it's ice cold and then add a large, thin slice of lemon peel. Got it? No doubt about it. The man knew how to order a drink. But it's created no end of problems on the other side by leading drinkers and indeed some bartenders to believe that the only way to mix a drink, any drink, is to shake it. I can't count the number of times that I've taken an order for a martini proceeded to measure out all the ingredients carefully, and then begin to lovingly stir, only to be interrupted, and harshly, I might add, with a request that I cease my laziness at once and just shake the damn thing. For the record, most original martini recipes from the 19th century mandate that the drink be shaken. It's also interesting to note that Bond's drink of choice was prepared with potato vodka, which contains certain oils that grain vodka doesn't. 
These oils are often considered unpalatable, but they can be mitigated by shaking the drink over ice. These days, though, when you're ordering a martini or really any drink that contains only alcoholic ingredients, you're gonna wanna stir it. Why? It all comes down to texture. Shaking a drink emulsifies it, introducing tiny air bubbles and releasing aroma particles that are great for drinks made with eggs or cream or citrus juice. But all that vigorous jiggling destroys the silky smooth texture you want from a hearty sipper, like a Sazerac or a Manhattan or a Martini. So the next time you order one, if you want that cold, clean flavor, you'd be better off adopting the opposite catchphrase. Stirred, not shaken. That being said, I'm not the flavor police. I was not put on this earth by God to tell people what is good and what is bad. Like what you like, and if it makes you happy, drink it. Now, if I think there's a better way to make the drink you just ordered, I'm not going to sugarcoat my opinions. But if that's the way you like your martinis, Mr. Bond, then by all means, go right ahead. The same is true for that crucial and oft-maligned ingredient in martini making, vermouth. Just as I'm forever having people tell me to shake their martinis, I'm constantly contending with service tickets asking for martinis dry, extra dry, no vermouth. I have a list of sources from the 30s, the 40s, the 50s, the 60s, and the 70s saying that vermouth is out of fashion and that customers want their drinks as dry as possible. The drier, the better. Even Winston Churchill, wartime genius and notable martini drinker, was purportedly in the habit of placing the unopened bottle of vermouth beside his glass and glancing in the direction of France before mixing. So the question isn't so much why do we hate vermouth now as why have we always hated it? To get the answer, we need to take a step back and look at what vermouth actually is and where it came from. It's New York, 1860. You're out to dinner at the Metropolitan Hotel. Soft piano music trickles through the background, filling the space in between white tablecloths, ornate dinnerware, and men and women in their best evening attire. Your waiter appears and asks if you would like something to drink. Well, they do sell their finest cognac by the court here, but $8 is a little much to splash out on drinks. Instead, why not shell out three bucks for this new Italian sensation everyone's been gabbing about? A sweet fortified wine called Vino Vermouth. Vermouth, the linchpin ingredient in the martini and a handful of other classic cocktails, is a fortified wine flavored with various botanicals. In fact, the word vermouth comes from the German word vermut, which means wormwood, a traditional ingredient in many early recipes. Like a lot of early cocktail ingredients, it started out as a medicine, manufactured in this case to treat intestinal parasites, but like a lot of early cocktail ingredients, people figured out pretty quick that it tasted good and could get you buzzed. It quickly made the jump from the apothecary shop to the aperitif glass. By the height of the Gilded Age, it was well established in the United States, primed to conquer a cocktail culture that was beginning to grow weary of the strong, the stiff, and the boozy. Naturally, this being 19th century America and 19th century Americans being a thirsty bunch, it was only a matter of time before we started putting this new vino vermouth stuff into a cocktail shaker. Sadly, the origin of the martini is one of the more mystery-shrouded chapters in the already quite murky annals of cocktail history. But we can safely say that before the world got the martinis we know it today, that ever-so-refined, chilled thing made with dry gin and dry vermouth, there was the vermouth cocktail, the Manhattan, the fourth degree, the Martinez, and believe it or not, the martini. 
In its original form, this drink and every other drink I just mentioned called for sweet Italian vermouth, and in the case of the Martini and the Martinez, which may well have been the same cocktail at different phases of its evolution, a sweeter form of gin, known as Old Tom. Like I said, the origin story of the Martini, or Martinez, or Martina, or Martinier, to name just a few of its aliases, is kind of difficult to pin down. But we do have one story that, while almost definitely untrue, bears repeating on the basis of being widely believed, popular, and pretty fun. Plus, it features a cameo appearance by Professor Jerry Thomas, one of bartending's all-time greatest Hall of Famers who, as far as we know, wasn't officially a professor of anything. The story goes that Thomas, during his early days in San Francisco, had a man come to his bar in dire need of, what else, a hangover cure. Thomas threw together his soon-to-be-famous cocktail, and when he asked the old man where he was headed, the reply was Martinez, California. Here's the recipe for that original drink, in the professor's own words. Take one dash of Boca's bitters, two dashes of maraschino, one pony of old Tom gin, one wine glass of vermouth, two small lumps of ice. Shake up thoroughly and strain into a large cocktail glass. Put a quarter of a slice of lemon in the glass and serve. If the guest prefers it very sweet, add two dashes of gum syrup. If you're keeping score at home, a wine glass is equivalent to two ounces, while a pony is one. And a word of warning if you're one of those people in the 19th century who likes their drinks with an extra two dashes of gum syrup, your time in the sun is about to come to an end. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. My name is Samantha Garner and I'm from Boston, Massachusetts. I'm a Cheeselandian because I take cheese seriously just like they do in Wisconsin. Cheeselandia is a community for loud and proud cheese lovers brought to life by Wisconsin Cheese. I know that I can always cook amazing food with their cheese and it's even good enough just to snack on. As a Cheeselandia member, I know there is always a supportive community behind me who always gets as excited as I do about cheese. Go to Cheeselandia.com to learn more and if it's for you, sign up. Check us out on Instagram at Cheeselandia. As the martini swelled in popularity toward the end of the century, it prompted a natural rise in curiosity towards gin. Gin began its life on the liquor shelf as Yenever, a Dutch liquor that was originally developed as, you guessed it, medicine. It was a fairly malt-forward spirit for many centuries until the English came along and did what the English inevitably do. They appropriated it, tweaked it, changed the name slightly, and then called it theirs. The resulting gin was a mildly sweet drink with a predominant flavor of juniper berries, and it gave rise to the more unabashedly sugary Old Tom gins that pop up in most 19th century cocktail books. This was the gold standard for a while until the turn of the century, when people started to take notice of this new stuff coming in from London. It wasn't sweet like an Old Tom, or malty like Yenever. It was smooth. It was dry. In fact, it was really dry, and it fit the spirit of the times perfectly. As a prestigious bartender told a reporter for the New York Herald in 1897, dry was the new watchword of the age. When a customer comes in and orders a sweet drink, I know at once he's from the country. And all my acquaintances with city men, I know not more than half a dozen who can stand drinking sweetened things. It is only the young fellows from the farm with their rosy cheeks and sound stomachs who can stand the course of sugary drinks. The reason for this is obvious. 
people are beginning to realize their stomachs are not made of cast iron. They want everything dry. The drier, the better. And thus was born the dry martini. The Hoffman House's recipe from 1905 calls for one and a half ounces of Nicholson gin, one and a half ounces of French vermouth, that is dry vermouth, and a dash of orange bitters with an orange peel garnish. The now extinct Nicholson can be swapped out for any respectable London dry gin, and by the dawn of the 20th century, people had already begun swapping out the orange peel for lemon or the now standard issue olive. Whatever you do though, don't forget about those bitters. They're the secret ingredient that separates a merely palatable cocktail from something truly special. And so you have the harmonious marriage of gin, vermouth, and bitters, a marriage that people are still trying to break up to this day. It's hard to shake the feeling that most modern drinkers view vermouth as an unwanted interloper in their cocktails while the bitters are often forgotten about entirely. Which is weird, because a martini without either of those things isn't a martini or even really a cocktail at all. It's cold gin in a stemmed glass. While we were talking, I asked Scott this very simple question. Why do people hate vermouth so much? Um, I don't think most people realize that vermouth is a wine product. And so they will open a bottle of it, and then they will put it into their bar, you know, not chilled, um, and set it in there next to all the bottles of spirits, and... Uh, and then use it, you know, once or twice, and then come back to it a month later, and then come back to it months and months later. And essentially, you've got a bottle of spoiled wine in the cabinet. You know, you would never open a bottle of Pinot Noir and stick it into your liquor cabinet and let it sit for months at a time and come back and expect that glass to be anything but awful. Basically, people don't like vermouth for the same reason they don't like broccoli, or opera, or New Jersey. There's plenty of stuff to like about all of those things, Broccoli Rob is delicious, and if the boss was from anywhere else, the world never would have gotten born to run, but enough bad experiences, and people just write them off lock, stock, and barrel. Simply put, there's just too much badly stored, badly maintained, badly presented vermouth out there that's spoiling it for everybody else. But while vermouth was, and for years always has, and maybe always will be out of style, by the middle of the last century, house parties were nothing but in. There's a great recipe book from that era that's very of its time. In fact, it's so of its time that the illustrations look like something the animator of Yellow Submarine might have done when they were drunk. Its cover is an almost obnoxiously bright splash of primary colors with no author, no publisher, in fact, no other letters on it except for the one word title, Booze. The description on the dust jacket reads as follows. June Dutton and Edith Vanneker are a couple of attractive housewives with an uncommon background in booze. Both have husbands who are deeply involved in the social madness of Washington, D.C. politics. Fred Dutton served with President Kennedy, and Sandy Vanneker is NBC's man in the nation's capital, making the nearly nightly rounds of Washington parties, receptions, balls, and the like. The Duttons and Vanekers became increasingly aware of the need for a sound, selective, concise compendium of interesting, workable drinks. June and Edith didn't just cry in their cups about it. They wrote the book, and here it is. kills me that there's no way on a podcast to show you the bright, optimistic, very trippy people that populate June and Edith's book. The overweight ginger Scotsman hoisting a Rob Roy, 
the smart sailor tending a barrel of rum, the busty women and leering politicians attending a classy gala at what looks very much like the balcony of the Watergate Hotel. It's also very indicative of a nation that was going to all the right parties, drinking all the right drinks, living all the right lives. Until they weren't. If the age of the martini was ushered in by one of the most straightforward good versus evil victories in American history when the Allies toppled fascism, it was growing threadbare by the time we turned our attention to communism in Southeast Asia. Boiled down to a talking point, the Vietnam War is a conflict which started as an extension of U.S. foreign policy and mutated into a humiliating billion-dollar death trap. Which obviously doesn't paint the complete picture, it is a talking point after all. But what it leaves unsaid is that this war, this struggle, wasn't just an extension of foreign policy. It was an extension of domestic policy, of private policy, of social niceties, of who we were. America in the 1960s was a country in the business of telling people what to do, of how to look, how to dress, how to vote, how to live. The legislature goes here, the electorate goes here, cocktail napkins over by the bar. We were a one-size-fits-all nation dedicated to finding the secret formula for the absolutely perfect party, political or otherwise. Some of our guests were bound to get fed up eventually. In 1965, an award-winning reporter who had already covered the conflict in Korea and World War II traveled to Saigon to observe the struggle for America's ideals firsthand. He didn't see a war that couldn't be won, as so many before him had claimed. He saw a war that couldn't be understood, with no clear goals, no clear enemy, and no clear path to victory on either side. Here are some of his thoughts from the capital. The longer you stay here, the more difficult it is to be sure you understand what really is going on, or whether any solution offered is the right and satisfactory one. Recognize that voice? Here's a hint. When you drink at a cocktail party, you are like an animal at the zoo. He doesn't get the whole picture because he's part of the system. Hal Boyle spent several months in Vietnam reporting on this war that we wouldn't or couldn't leave. The Pulitzer Prize-winning curmudgeon on his third international battlefield made a number of observations that sound eerily similar to his correspondences from the front lines of American suburbia. This is an arena where you have an uneasy feeling that gossip is a major industry. The guests, who had nothing to say before, now can't shut up. Holding on to each other's coat lapels, they are engaged in eyeball-to-eyeball -eyeball shouting matches. It may well turn out that this is one of those places where a fellow is just as much an authority after 24 hours here as after 24 months here. I'd hate to say 24 years. Although his aching muscles rebelled, he must grow tomatoes in his backyard. Why? Because his neighbor does. Everybody in the suburbs grows tomatoes or loses caste. If you do, you're in. If you don't, you're out. Who best serves the aspirations of the Vietnamese people? The native them or the foreign us? Reduced to another talking point, we were forcing the Vietnamese to grow tomatoes at gunpoint. There are a lot of theories as to what killed martinis and really cocktails as a whole in the late 60s and early 70s. The cola wars, self-help books, religion. My theory is more specific, less domestic, and ultimately more tragic. By 1968, 
The Vietnam War had been going on for nine years. Americans at home and on the front lines were exhausted and stretched thin by a test of our ideals that seemed endless. Then, early in the morning of March 16th, American soldiers arrived to eradicate VC forces in a tiny village called My Lai. The deaths that followed would later be called the most shocking episode of the Vietnam War, or in the press, the Pinkville Massacre. In a piece called Mr. President Save That Illusion, writer Russell Baker accuses the press, the army, and the executive branch of shielding the soldiers responsible for these atrocities in order to protect the American sense of self. The Pinkville Massacre strikes a blow against one of our fondest illusions, the American fighting man as G.I. Joe. How we love that great guy slogging through Europe with a wisecrack on his lips, a wink in his eye, and a chocolate bar in his pocket for the orphaned Paisano kids left behind by the Nazis. Now we are challenged to see him as a guy whose answer to a pleading mother hugging her child is a burst of automatic rifle fire. When this episode began, I talked about some of the images that come to mind when someone mentions the word martini. Classy bars, men in suits, embroidered cocktail napkins. For me, it's just two images, two military photographs, signaling the birth and the death of America's golden martini years. The first takes place in Times Square on August 14th, 1945. You've seen it before. It's the one of the sailor and the nurse, so joyous, so carried away. The thing I love about this shot, the thing that everybody loves about it, is the spontaneity, the sheer unbridled joy the promise of peace and prosperity and good things to come for them, for America, for young lovers everywhere. The future belongs to them, and they know it. Look at her hand next time you see the photo. She's surprised, sure, but you can tell she's kissing him back. The second image isn't of Americans or taken in America. It shows a dirt road and clouds of what look like smoke in the background. There's a child on the road, running toward the camera, naked, screaming, covered in napalm. Strip a man of his illusions and you destroy him, Baker wrote. Nations, like people, also live by their illusions. It wasn't just the United States military that failed in Vietnam. It was the United States ideals of what we are and what we were and what we desired to be. So why in the hell are we still so in love with this time in our past? It is admittedly and unapologetically one of the most inflexible times in American history, a time when my way or the highway permeated everything from foreign policy to social gatherings to goddamn county zoning laws. It was a time that told people how to look, how to act, how to think, and yet since then, we've greenlit 24 James Bond movies and given 16 Primetime Emmy Awards to Mad Men. Why is it that today, when someone forces middle-class American ideals in a foreign country, he's a warmongering fascist, and yet the web search, How to Throw a 1950s House Party, yields a million and a quarter hits on Google? I honestly don't have a good answer to that, at least not one that I can defend intellectually. The best reason I have for why we're still so enamored with this time in our history where we tried so hard to enforce ideals that just didn't work is a cocktail of equal parts envy and pity. I envy them their naivete, 
and I pity them for the same reason. There's something kind of charming about an era, a people, a civilization so committed to their own idea of themselves as the good guy, the right guy, the guy with all the answers. And it's tempting in an age of self-doubt to be suckered in by these people that thought that if they just bought the right gin, fought the right wars, and stored their vermouth in the fucking refrigerator the way you're supposed to, that everything would turn out just fine. I guess, at the end of the day, what I ultimately feel is sorry for them. Sorry for their extinction. Sorry for their disillusionment. Sorry that for better or for worse, the party finally came to an end. This episode of Back Bar was researched, written, and directed by me, Greg Benson. Keegan Cassidy and I produced while Ryan Laney scored, edited, and mixed our show. You can find his work at ryanlaneymusic.com. Back Bar is powered by Simplecast. A huge thank you to our fantastic guests on today's show, Professor Fred Smith and Scott Harris, as well as our talented troupe of actors, Mary Myers, Carolyn Kashner, John Stang, and Keegan Cassidy. Thank you so much for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Follow me on Instagram at 100proofgreg. That's 100 with numbers, not letters. And you can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. HRN is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Do you want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, like, say, this one right here. Tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. We'll be back in two weeks to talk about Prohibition, its curious offspring, the margarita, and more on history's favorite drinks and how what we drink shapes history. Cheers. Cheers.